Hello, you are listening to So What, a podcast from Canadian Mennonite University. CMU is in Treaty 1 territory, Winnipeg, Manitoba. I am your host, Jonas Cornelson, in Treaty 7, Calgary, Alberta. I think I, I think I continue to ask what good change is and what my role is in bringing it about. That is the voice of Chris Clausen, who joined me this month to wrap up our graduation series, catching up with people who spoke at CMU grad events and seeing if what they said then still applies to life now. Chris graduated from CMU in 2015 and was a founding host of that other CMU podcast, Wittenberg Radio, produced by Student Council. Chris is also a new parent, a practicing lawyer, and so much more. When he graduated, Chris had a lot more questions than answers. So catching up with him seven years later, I was curious to see what he would say when some of those questions were offered back to him. You'll hear these questions, and a few other words, in Chris's voice first, and then I'll be back to queue up our conversation. Here is Chris at graduation 2015. Uh, as has been said, my name is Chris Clausen, and I'm graduating with a four-year Bachelor of Arts, uh, having majored in International Development Studies and minored in Communications and Media. The real value in my education here at CMU, that for which I'm most grateful, has come from somewhat of an unexpected place. Uh, my standing here today could simply indicate to you that over the past four years I passed all my exams and put sufficient effort into my reading and writing. And while in a sense this is true, I think it's more appropriate to reflect on my studies by thinking rather about how and for what I've been shaped and equipped. I've certainly learned much while working toward uh, meeting degree requirements. And to be honest, when I began my studies here, I expected these individual requirements to be the source of my learning, to, to constitute the greatest benefit uh, to me that a university degree could have to offer. Over time, though, I began to see that the way in which my education would most significantly change me would not be credited to the specific assignments in my syllabi. Instead, and particularly for me as a student of development, I came to see the collective whole of my education as the source of its value. In other words, the value of my education here at CMU is greater than the sum of its parts. Development, or good change as it's helpfully explained to first-year students, involves a vision of the future potential of someone's well-being and that of their community. We learn that such a vision is mostly, if not only, appropriate when one defines it for herself. The individual courses, assignments, and conversations of my CMU education have together left me with tools, mostly questions, that have and will continue to cause me to think about what kind of world I am driven to work toward. For example, how would we live differently if we paid closer attention to the far-reaching effects of our actions and choices? What if we paid closer attention to where our food comes from, or where our carbon emissions go? What if we allowed our economic interactions to be informed by the understanding that life itself is fundamentally a gift? How would we go about sharing ideas in a way that shows sound communication to be an important part of proper stewardship of creation? How do we acknowledge and then work out of our privilege and biases? 
I've come to understand development as a continual response to questions such as these. For me, only brought about and tied together by the diverse and complementary elements of my education here. I've been brought to wholeheartedly agree with writers such as Susan Clausen and Doris Jansen Longacre, who would say that to do development is simply to nurture life. And it's for learning such as these that I will always be grateful. Thank you. There's Chris Clausen, circa 2015, asking questions that may or may not have answers. Now, during this series, I've mostly talked with people about their careers. Seems logical. We tend to think of university as preparing us for specific kinds of paid work. We also spend a lot of time at our jobs. So it's no surprise that we try to find some meaning and value in the work that we do. But life is about so much more than that. And Chris is not one to limit the impact of what he learned in school to what he does in an office. In fact, right from the start of our conversation, Chris reminded me there's more to life than work. We chatted on a Monday, and Chris had taken the day off, not so he could recharge to be more productive back at work, but because spending time resting and being with family are equally important, probably more so. As we talked, I kept framing questions, Chris's own questions, in terms of his work in the legal system. And Chris kept gently guiding me back to life beyond work, where these questions are just as relevant. His job does come up occasionally. So first, I'll give you just a brief snapshot of what that is. Yeah, so I, I practice uh, law. I, I, um, I mean, it's a little technicality. Technically, I'm self-employed, but I do work for an organization that effectively functions as a nonprofit. And uh, their clients are predominantly uh, nonprofit organizations who are working on um, law reform initiatives or systemic issues on behalf of the, the folks that they represent. Okay, here we go with asking Chris his own questions. Your reflection upon, upon graduating from CMU in 2015, you had all these questions and you talked about questions sort of being like tools. I want to ask you if these tools have been useful by actually kind of reminding you of some of these questions you asked and, and seeing what you might have to say about them in light of your, of your experiences. All right. Ask me my questions. I don't remember what they are. <laughs> so the first, uh, the first question I want to ask you is actually the last one that you asked. You said, how do we acknowledge and then work out of our privilege and biases? This is something I've talked about a bit in other episodes of this podcast. So I'm curious, like, what that looks like for you in your in your work. I mean, more broadly than in work, I, I think one I think one enables the other. I think acknowledge, acknowledging your position allows you to work in a way that that uh, reflects it appropriately. I mean, I think we all have uh, an obligation to do our work to be self aware uh, with respect to our uh, our privileged positions if we have them. Um, and to recognize how and when our voices might be crowding out others. And the awareness isn't, isn't enough. You know, if, you, yeah. if, if you, you, you recognize that you are taking up too much space, you need to do something about it. Yeah. What, what, do you, what do you actually do? Is there kind of an anecdote or an example you can think of where you went, oh, like, I got to step back here? Again, speaking more broadly than just in work, um, mm. Anytime you're trying to work uh, with other people, whether in community organizations or uh, in in work settings, um, 
I've found that the vast majority of the time, um, my voice is not the most important one in the room. Uh, and especially at work, uh, I more often need to be listening than, than speaking. Um, mm. especially when I'm, when I'm speaking on behalf of others, um, I need to spend 10 times as much time he hearing those voices than actually speaking on behalf of them if I'm going to, to do it effectively. My call with Chris got cut off for a moment here. So I thought I'd drop in and say it's kind of funny you're listening to two white guys talk about when to stop talking. If this doesn't apply to you, feel free to skip ahead. But if you're a white guy, I highly recommend you pay attention. When we reconnected, I asked Chris, when you're not the most important voice in the room, what is your role in being there? Listening and learning. Uh, and I'm, I'm in the room, let's say in a community organization setting because I'm interested in the issue being discussed or because I, I guess I'm in the room because there, there's a chance that there might be an opportunity for me to contribute, but that it wouldn't be appropriate for me to do so until, until it's clear that, um, that that would be welcome. I think the underlying issue, though, is that with privilege comes somewhat of an, 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 an assumption that you have something meaningful or valuable to contribute. And mm. it takes humility to recognize that that's not always the case. But but and yet you're listening and learning. And that's that might actually, you know, that might inform the way you choose to offer or not some value in the future. You know, an illustrative example that comes to mind is from uh, a meeting with a transportation advocacy group here in, in Winnipeg years ago, not mm. work related, just like yeah. community volunteer involvement. Someone pointed out to the group that it wasn't actually cyclists we needed to talk to in order to better understand barriers to cycling, mm. you know, because yeah. cyclists are the people who don't experience barriers to cycling. So what, what do they know about what's keeping people from using their bikes to get around? Mm -hmm. Nothing. So where, whereas like we were all cyclists and we thought we thought we knew a lot about cycling and about active right. transportation. Yeah. Um, and so turns out we were, uh, asking the wrong questions and we weren't the right people to be providing answers. Yep. You, you nailed it. This, that hits, that hits right home for me. Chris got me there. I bike quite a bit and, and I realized I may have a lot of shutting up to do. I was so overwhelmed here that I failed to come up with a smooth transition to asking Chris the next of his own questions. With my apologies for that. Let's see how Chris tackles another one. This one sounds big and scary, but we'll break it down. What if we allowed our economic interactions to be informed by the understanding that life itself is fundamentally a gift? And, and I'll, I'll post-preface this question. It sounds, it sounds system level. It's, it sounds very big, but, but I want to know how, how thinking about life as a gift affects you, know, you and, and the way you live and the habits that you have around you know, maybe buying stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, it, um, uh, it invites you to be generous, <coughs> I think, when you uh, don't view the things you have as, as your own or, or rightfully yours. It changes the way you participate in society, in, uh, to use apparently my words, uh, economic interactions. I don't know. Like we can debate the extent to which uh, the 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 uh, premise holds, yeah. um, but I think the idea drives a person toward uh, 
generosity. Right. No, and, and I'm, I'm not even trying to test you on, like, whether you actually do any given thing or not. I'm just wondering, like, if if that question is, is still useful to you or, or oh, if that still so. kind of informs. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's useful to me. I, I, I continue to um, reflect on that. That, I, that comes from a textbook. That you're physically looking for on your shelf. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you know what? I'm willing to bet it's sacred economics. Yeah, it is sacred economics. By uh, Charles Eisenstein. Yeah, you're right. Sa- uh, sacred economics. Um, and, and I think generally the idea is to consider how our relationships and, and interactions are uh, might change if we recognized that uh, life is a gift, that the things that we have um, are not things that we've earned or are entitled to, and uh, what we might then share instead of keeping for ourselves I'm I'm curious. I, I want to drill down into just like a bit of the nitty gritty of daily life. Like you're a busy guy, you know. You're a new dad. You got a full time job. I'm willing to bet you're not thinking about this stuff every single time you walk out the door to like go buy groceries or whatever. But can you think of a habit, a certain practice that you have adopted that you might not otherwise have, if not for this question? Oh, uh, well, I mean, I think it certainly informs our financial decision making as a household. And it also certainly informs uh, how we choose to spend our time. A, uh, a fun evening for us uh, looks more like making a meal and spending time with other people than watching a movie or whatever. What else? Yeah, uh, I think the way we treat our, our home uh, is, is informed by that. We've, we've um, tried to set it up in a way that makes it comfortable for other people to come and spend time and whatever. I, I, yeah. I guess those are probably the things that come to mind first. It strikes me as, as a less consumptive view of life and a more kind of relational orientation. Sure. As you may have guessed from my knowledge of the books on Chris's shelf, we took several courses together at CMU. So having swam in a few of the same intellectual waters, many of the questions I had for Chris are also ones I've asked myself. The end of our conversation took us to the value of the questions themselves, and then toward good change, a phrase Chris used in 2015, and one that he continues to ponder. You left CMU with nothing but questions. Are you, are you looking for answers, or, or is that the point? Well, that, that's not very generous towards CMU. I left CMU with a university degree, which I paid for, but I still had it. <laughs> Um, no, I, th- I, th- I think it invited, uh, well, based on my comments at the end, I, I, I don't think they were designed as questions intended to be answered. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think through those years, I was invited into a posture of questioning, yeah. um, which I think is a productive place to be. What, uh, are, are there any kind of, are there questions that come up for you now? I mean, if you kind of thought of like one or two of sort of the, the key questions that are guiding you in, in like your day to day at the moment, what, what would some of those be? Yeah, good question. What are my guiding questions? I think I, I think I continue to ask what good change is and what my role is in bringing it about. So like I've got a nine month old. Yeah. You know, um, what does it look like to nurture a nine month old? Well, mm-hmm. it's uh, 
It's it's uh, food and love and affection. Someday it will also be uh, coaching him through complex social situations. But uh, for now, it's it's um, more straightforward than that, and mm-hmm. uh, doesn't doesn't do much good. I've found to worry about the 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 more complex challenges that are to come because for now good change means making sure that he's fed and warm and feels safe yeah uh or what is it yeah so that that, that's that's maybe Mm -hmm. an illustrative example from from home you've continued to ask the same questions in different circumstances and and they resonate i don't know if you want to end this on a question but maybe it's appropriate given how we started sure um but uh i would say that it's a question i keep asking and i think that's okay Well, I went into this conversation wondering if I'd find answers, but I mainly found out that the questions Chris asked seven years ago when graduating from CMU are still useful tools for figuring out how to live in the workplace, but also well beyond it. That's as good a place as any to leave our graduation series. Thanks to all the CMU alumni I caught up with these past few months, and thanks especially to Chris Clausen for closing it out, and thanks to you for listening in. If you have questions that shape how you live, I'd love to hear from you. Send a message to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast. My name is Jonas Cornelson. Have a great holiday season, and I'll talk to you again soon.